Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, As I said earlier, the text this morning is the classic Pentecost text. Um, As I kind of hinted at in the children's message, I think sometimes we, we get this a little bit mixed up in our heads, thinking that this, at least I did for the longest time growing up, that it was, you know, the, the 11 disciples plus Matthias. You remember Judas is gone, Matthias is in, and that's, that's how Pentecost happened. But really, it sounds a lot more like, if you go just a little bit earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, it says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And then our text says that they're all gathered in this one place. So it's, it's more like there's 120, maybe even more than that, who are gathered in this place, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and then all of them seem to go out and do this incredible, miraculous prophesying. So that's, that's really kind of the scene that is set. Um, it's also Pentecost existed before this, Pentecost, was the, the feast of the Old Testament, and it was after when they were celebrating the Passover. So there's a reason why there's a bunch of people around. I mean, they're, they're back for another festival. So it's, it's a little bit different of a story, I think, when we're keeping that in mind. Um, and then this incredible event happens that Jesus himself promised. Remember about two weeks ago, uh, we were preaching in the gospel of John, and Jesus says, I promise I will send to you another, or the Father will send to you another helper. Um, And that other helper is this Holy Spirit that we read about today. So this is our text from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I know it's a long text, and a lot of things are going on and happening in our text this morning. But I think that's It's one of those texts that we can look at from a slightly different angle each and every time we read it. And where I want to start is with an angle that maybe maybe you're aware of, but doesn't really come to mind as much as, as the other cool aspects of the Holy Spirit doing this really cool thing. And that is, God is working the long angle. God is working the long game. He has been putting together the pieces of the game, of the puzzle, or however you want to think about it. He's putting things together in place just right over a long period of time so that this moment, this miracle would have the most amount of effect. What do I mean by the long game? Well, first, understand that Joel wrote his, his text, wrote his prophecy down 800-ish years before this, right? So that's a pretty long game. But yeah, okay, so he wrote stuff down. Oftentimes, God worked through people a long time in advance. We're pretty accustomed to that. But also, all of these people from all over the world, as it's described, the known world at the time, well, how is it that we have devout Jews from all over the place when we know that the Jews were from Israel. Like how, how are there so many devout Jews all over? Well, in 720, there was this great battle, and Jerusalem fell, and then there was an exile. And it happened again in 586 B.C. So 800 years before, right, Joel writes this thing, the prophet Joel writes this thing, and then in 720, this other thing happens where the people are taken and spread out all over. It happens again in 586, so we're kind of counting down. And then about 30-ish years before Jesus' birth, Rome becomes an empire. And now all of these Jews who had been taken from Jerusalem hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they've had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren all the way down, and they, they have passed down the Jewish faith and the scriptures so, so profoundly, so effectively that we have people who are of the Jewish faith, the Israelites, living in all of these, these different places that speak different languages that they basically see and understand as home. So at the time, of, of course, the, the Jewish people would have known some Hebrew pretty well, right, because of the Hebrew scriptures. But probably better than that even is Aramaic, they would have known. And they probably knew Greek pretty well, but they, they had this mother tongue from where they were born. And we, 
We run into this exact same phenomenon when we go to Kenya all the time. Many people speak English in, in Kenya. And many of them also will speak Swahili. That is kind of the language they're, they're trying to make everybody understand and learn for all of Africa. Right? There was a big push a long time ago to do that. But then they all have their own mother tongue. So we go to one village, and they, they speak Luo. Another village, they speak Kikuyu. Maybe they both speak Swahili, so they can speak in that language together. And then some of them speak English. It's, it's really kind of creepy sometimes how similar it is to this experience you can imagine in Jerusalem, this exact same thing. And what happens in this miracle is that these people who would certainly not know the other language, even though they interact with them all the time, they wouldn't know the language because well, it's the mother tongue. It happens all the time when we're in Kenya or in Nairobi, and maybe these two people know Swahili, but this one speaks this language, this one speaks that language. They've been around each other in their tribes for a long time, and they do not speak the language. So this is, this is not just to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed, because that they could have done in Greek, and everybody would have understood. Or that they could have done in Aramaic, and all of the Jews would have understood this was to illustrate the power of God and show to everyone, no, <laughs> no, I have had my hand in this for over 800 years. And, and that's just from our text this morning. We could point to how this, this orchestration of this event goes back thousands of years. So God, when he orchestrates and designs and, and moves in such a way to advance his kingdom, he's not thinking in terms of weeks, months, and years. He's working in terms of centuries and millennia, which is confounding to a lot of us who have trouble keeping track of days, weeks, months, and years. When God plays the long game, that includes your life. When God plays the long game, that means how he's being active in your life as well. We do struggle to, to even not repeat history as, as a culture, a community, whatever it might be, just going back a few decades you ask most of the people in Des Moines, tell me about the history of Des Moines, or in my personal hometown, Waukee, 90% of the people in Waukee don't remember, myself included, I only hear the stories, but don't remember when it was this small little farm community on a dirt road that was way outside of town. <laughs> That's the truth. I, I recall when I first moved here, somebody was like, you live in Waukee? It was an older lady I was visiting in, in the nursing home, and she just couldn't believe I lived so far out of town. <laughs> like, okay. But that, that's, we, we, we lose track of that. Now, think in terms of hundreds of years and, and thousands of years. But see, in our, our life is so short and so fleeting. We expect God's work and his activity to be profound in this short amount of time or highly visible in the immediate future instead of understanding 
that God's concern with his kingdom branches much further out than just you and me and our lives. In fact, Joel, the prophet Joel. Who the heck is Joel? Joel, heck, I don't know him. Joel, heck, ha. It was a joke because I had a professor named Joel, heck. Okay, like nobody would get that because, all right. <laughs> Do you remember Joel, heck? No? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Old Testament professor. Anyways, Joel, a minor prophet, not all that well known, not, not well studied by any of us most likely, and yet he is the one, Joel, to prophesy this amazing thing. And the one who speaks this sermon, the one who stands up to preach is Peter, a simple fisherman. He, he's not prepared for this sermon. He hasn't been writing it for a week or a month or a year. He, he doesn't know that this exact thing is going to happen, but it dawns on him because the spirit working in him goes, this is what is meant when Joel said. And the only reason he knows Joel is because he has been faithful, and he's been faithful because of his parents' faithfulness and their parents' faithfulness, on and on and on, back. So he's heard the scriptures. This happened at a time before people could just Google it, right? So you had to memorize and you just naturally memorize. The same way that most of us have so many song lyrics memorized because we've heard it over and over and over again. He's heard this read countless times and he goes, I know what that is. And he just stands up and he, he just delivers a sermon that is basically, um, remember, like I, I know if I know as a fisherman this text, you all know this text too. And he just says the text and everybody goes, that does seem like what's happening right now. And the thing that was happening right now, that God had been moving and putting into place, Pentecost, <laughs> it was a lot of things. I'm just going to put the second bullet point up here because I'm not going to remember all of them. It was bewildering, amazing, astonishing, amazing, and perplexing. In the text this morning, we have all of these highlighted. I don't want to put all the verses up because it's a lot of them. But, but the author, Luke, is saying all of these things, and it's, it's really kind of weird Greek to stack all of these things up. He says, at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, blah, blah, blah. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed. What does this mean? Like, so all of these verbs stacked up, you get the sense that it's just like when, when something happens and you were there and you saw it and you're trying to convey to somebody how huge this was. You're like, dude, it was like, I mean, it was like, uh, I don't know. And you start throwing out verbs, right? This is what Luke is doing in our text. He's just throwing out these verbs like it was, it was awesome, it was huge. You, you had to be there to, to see it. But why? Why is it such a big deal? It's just the Holy Spirit doing this thing, and people spoke other languages. And when you think about the miracles of Jesus, this doesn't seem too, too cool, right? Like, if you're going to make a list of the cool stuff, obviously water to wine has got to be up there, because if you can just do that anytime you want, right, your, your beer tab goes way down, right? Just water into wine. That's number one, probably for most of us. Walking on water... 
Dude, that would be such a cool trick, right? You got that one. I mean, you've got, okay, healing people. Maybe that should be one instead. All right, I'll give you that. But like all of these other really amazing miracles don't have the same verbs thrown at them in the Gospel of Luke as the author here, the same author Luke in the book of Acts, talks about this, this Holy Spirit. This is a bigger deal than all of those miracles for two reasons. First, this giving of the Holy Spirit is a bigger deal because it involves everybody. Not everybody walked on water. Not everybody was healed. Not everybody experienced water to wine. Many people experienced, saw, participated in whatever, those, those miracles, but this is for every believer who was gathered. Every one of them, the 120-ish, whatever that number really is, it, if you recall from our text, the Spirit came on all of them. All of the believers experienced it. And number two, and this is the game changer that we seem to forget as Christians far too often. The Holy Spirit, for the first time ever, now dwells in mankind. This is a huge deal. In the Old Testament, there are plenty of times when the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody. It, the prophets themselves, Joel included, say things like, in the year of whatever king, the, the Spirit of the Lord came upon me, meaning it wasn't there in, in one way, and now it is, happened at this time. There are times when the Holy Spirit is said to go into somebody like Joshua, but that means before then, the Holy Spirit wasn't in Joshua in this same way. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the game changer of the church. It, it separates in, into a whole new season of what God does. The Holy Spirit dwelt amongst the people, occasionally upon the prophets. On certain people for a time, he dwells in them for a reason and for a season. But now at Pentecost, for the first time ever, the Spirit of God dwells in the people. And Luke can't even think of all of the verbs to use to tell you how important this is. And we forget about it. <laughs> Luke said, this, this is so different than anything that has ever happened before. And as you read the Old Testament, you get this sense of the Spirit dwelling amongst the people, and a lot of the things of the kingdom of God are these external things, right? The, the priests had to wear a certain thing, and they had to do this thing with a sacrifice of, of animals, and you could see that, and they couldn't eat this thing, and they, they couldn't do that thing, and it was all of these externalities because the Spirit of God was outside, why did God's spirit work amongst the people, around the people, with the people, but now works in people? It's the cross. You see, where, where the glory of God resides, sin can't. Sin is destroyed. The sinfulness of mankind precludes the Holy Spirit from dwelling inside. Sin had to be dealt with. So God dealt with sin on the cross. And now when one says they believe, 
when one has faith and looks upon the cross and knows they are forgiven because of what God's own son did on that cross, that sin is dealt with, and now God can exist, abide, and dwell in us. That is the game changer. So the externalities fall away. So the the outside things, the do this, the don't do that, the eat this, don't eat that, the, the garb, the clothing, all of these things out here that, that were intended to remind us of the kingdom of God have gone because now the spirit of God dwells in us to remind us, to point us, and to keep us faithful to his word. Do you see how incredibly important, how different it is to have God's spirit in you? This means that all of those things that we wrestle with and that we struggle with, these things we wrestle with personally on our own that we try and manage with our own frail flesh, this is foolishness. God's spirit lives in us. We, we set that aside in our minds and, and think, okay, Spirit of God lives in me, blah, 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 whatever, but I have to work on this, or I have to stop doing that, or if only I could, and we focus on ourselves and forget that the Spirit that is in us constantly, daily, hourly, minute by minute, is working to change us, and we're not engaging in the Spirit We're not addressing the Spirit. Uh, Hopefully you picked up when I was praying, and I do this pretty regularly. Do Do you converse? Do you pray to the Holy Spirit? It's not blasphemy because you're not praying to a different God. There is one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We often pray to the Father in the name of the Son, but where is our conversation with his Spirit? The Spirit that dwells in us. Where is our conversation to say, Holy Spirit, guide me and lead me, as we just sang in our last song? Where is our conversation with the Spirit? It really only comes in those times when suddenly we want to know something. (laughs) We're trying to figure something out. Now I want to learn the Holy Spirit and understand the whole. Now is a good time because I got this big decision coming up. So Holy Spirit, That, that is not the way anything in God's creation works. Right? If you've got a big event that, that you are going to do, a big physical event, you don't start training the day of. Right? You should be training months in advance. If you've got a big test coming up, if you're still in school, sorry for you, <laughs> but if you're, if you're still studying, you've got a big test coming up, you don't start the morning of the test. Right? Okay, I did. Stop. Yeah, all right, I did. <laughs> but I shouldn't have. Right? That's, that's how it works. You, you prepare in advance. You get to know the Spirit of God before those times when you desperately need to call him. It's not as though he's going to leave you high and dry like, yeah, you should have been talking to me for months and months and months, but rather your ears aren't tuned. Your heart isn't tuned. He may well be speaking to you and leading you and guiding you, but you can't listen to it because you haven't been trying to listen your whole life. 
The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, isn't something to pursue out there somewhere to know more about. The Spirit of God is right inside of each and every one of us to converse with, to embrace, and to love as your God. Because the Spirit of God is your God, as is the the Father and the Son. And in all of this, this tuning of yourself is as simple as the daily reading of Scripture and addressing the Spirit, the daily prayers and addressing the Spirit, the asking of the Spirit's guidance day by day by day, and not just in the very moments. And what you'll discover over time, it's not quick and easy, is that people will look at you a little bit crazy And you may have to start your sermon to them the same way Peter had to start his sermon. I'm not drunk. (laughs) As the very first sermon we have recorded in Scripture, the very first bullet point Peter would have put on the screen is, I'm not drunk. Now here's the thing. I've heard that said many a time. They were always drunk, right? (laughs) You don't say that unless you are. But Peter here has to say to this this large crowd of people that, no, I I haven't been drinking. They haven't been drinking. It's it's way too early in the morning for that. And and there's some really interesting reasons why that's definitive proof. But the point is, it, it seemed crazy. And even more crazy is this response to the craziness. It was so bewildering, amazing, perplexing, and all of those verbs that, that people were like, I, I, I don't even know and understand what's going on here. I bet they're just drunk. Now, this has always, always confounded me because that seems like a bonkers explanation for this amazing thing. Have you ever known somebody to get so drunk they knew a different language? Right? I mean, okay, if that was true, I, listen, I, I went to high school and college in Wisconsin. If that were true, the, the cheesehead state would be the most bilingual state on the planet, right? Every Packer game would be like Pentecost, right? It does, doesn't happen. Doesn't, it's not how it works. And some people have said, okay, maybe, maybe they were saying that people hearing were drunk. Have you ever been so drunk that somebody speaking a different language sounded like English? Like, it's, it's absolutely preposterous. It's, it's, it's the weirdest explanation, but that's just how strange this seemed. And here's, here's what's important to note, is that when you are opposed to the kingdom of God, when someone is opposed to the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter the, the miraculous, amazing, profound thing that they themselves witness or are told of, they will find a reason not to believe. They will find a way to dismiss it. And that's, that's actually kind of comforting to me, and it should be to all of us. Because what it means is is there is no amount of preparation and study and argument that you can perfect and craft and deliver to a non-believer so that you can convince them that they should believe. 
Apologetics are very useful in, in terms of removing certain roadblocks for non-believers, but believers as well. To understand how things work, this is all really very good, but at the end of the day, when, when a person chooses to reject the Holy Spirit's clear invitation, they will. They'll find a reason. And it might be preposterous. And, and we've seen this ourselves really even recently. We see people reject what, what seems to us as like clear data right here, right? And, and there's people on the other side of the aisle or the debate or discussion. I'm just describing the internet. Basically, we're like, well, check out my research. Well, check out my research and, and all of these battles. And, and people will ignore because they've got a predisposed idea or thought about who God is. And you can't defeat that. And I can't defeat that. The Spirit of God will do his work in ways that I don't understand, in terms that I don't get, but most certainly he will do so in the long game. He's working the long game always with his spirit. So on Pentecost, we recall, first and foremost, thanks be to God, that my sin has been dwelt with, dealt with so that the Spirit of God can dwell in me because of Christ's death. And, and second, because of that indwelling of the Spirit, I need an ongoing, daily conversation with the Holy Spirit to be tuned into Him. I need to address the Holy Spirit in my thoughts and in my prayers regularly, not once a year at Pentecost. And then finally, we understand the Spirit will do His work when and where he pleases. On this day, Pentecost, we hear this amazing fact towards the end of Peter's sermon, which again, mostly he's just quoting Old Testament and telling people what they already know happened. We get all the way to the end of chapter 2, and it says, so those who received his word were baptized. That is what Peter was saying. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just a fisherman. Just some guy who had been with Jesus, had seen these things, but was not overly articulate, was not trained in rhetoric, had never delivered a sermon before. So if you think that you need all of those things to preach the word of God. Just remember that it may not even be about you. It might be about somebody a hundred years before you were born, planting the seeds in generations of people to this person who just happens to be before you that God has orchestrated in this moment. And you don't have to deliver a brilliant sermon as much as you have to simply share what you already know that you have a savior, his name is Jesus, whose death is for you, the forgiveness of sins. And you just recount what you already know about your faith and what you believe, and God may have been doing work to this person on his heart since before they were born, so that at this exact moment, at this exact time, the spirit through you does something simple and ordinary and plain, 
that of course we would all be perplexed and bewildered and amazed if we had opportunity to witness. Amen. May the peace of the Holy Spirit and of God himself be with you all. Amen. Would you please stand to receive the benediction. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your son Jesus who cleanses us of our sin and makes room for you to dwell in us. Holy Spirit, you dwell in each and every one of us who believe in you, have called upon your name, given to us in our baptism. And I pray, Lord, uh, that that Holy Spirit of yours would come alight in each and every one of us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would tune our ears to listen to you. I pray, Spirit, that you would remind each and every one of us in our prayers, beginning immediately, to address you, to speak with you, to, to give to you the praise and the adulation that you need and you deserve. And I pray, Lord, that you grant to us in your spirit the power to share and to witness with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give to you his peace. Amen.